All right, guys, y'all ready to do this? I'm ready. Merry Christmas. want to welcome you guys. Um, we began, as we approached the Christmas season, a uh, discussion of the generosity of God and looking into God's good gifts to us. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, how God's generosity is surprising and how God's generosity to us was costly both to Him and to others as Christmas took its toll and people paid a great price for our redemption and our Savior did beyond measure. What, what I want to talk about today is something important. When we consider we've been given this costly, surprising gift is the need to guard this gift. The need to guard and protect the gift of Christmas. Now, this is something that's incredibly important and it may sound weird at first, but I want you to think about Great gifts and the need to guard them. And so we have a house full of kids. Uh, We didn't always have five kids. That happens progressively in God's grace. Um, When we started, we had our first two who were boys. uh, Jack and Caden, they're in here this morning, so they get to hear me tell a story about them. Um, They are right at two years apart. And they had an interesting experience. Jack likes to do things. And so at about age six, he outpaced me in Legos, for example. I, I became just useful to find parts and hand them to him. Uh, and so he's always kind of liked to, to just tinker with things. Caden uh, was different. Caden uh, didn't learn to walk till he was about four. But at, at 10 months, he learned to run. And so he didn't slow down for there. And so there was this game... Well, maybe it was a game in our house where where Jack would get these toys that he was playing with, like the larger Legos and things that he would be working with at, a, at about uh, two and a half or so. And and Caden uh, would run by, grab as many as he could and take off yelling, no, 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 as he ran the other direction. And so Jack learned with good gifts, you guard them by putting them on top of the dining table and playing up there because he still couldn't reach. See, older siblings know about guarding your gifts and protecting them uh, just so that you get to enjoy them and use them. But Christmas is a little different, but needs to be guarded nonetheless. Now, I want us to talk about something for a moment because I think this desire and tendency to guard Christmas has gotten twisted just a little bit in our culture. Uh, So there has been a long-standing history in Western culture of trying to take Christmas and secularize it. Trying to take Christmas and make it not so much about Jesus and more about gifts and goodwill and positive vibes, whatever you want to call it. And it's not new. In fact, if you could trace this all the way back to the Christmas Carol written by Charles Dickens, which was an effort to keep the sentiment of Christmas and take the baby Jesus out. As one author said, to throw out the baby and keep the bathwater. And so we're not new in this, but we can see it pretty obviously as we look around American culture. There's all the trappings of Christmas without Christ at times. Um, Even so far that using the word Christmas has become really a, a place of contention in our culture. Those who say we say happy holidays because there are people celebrating things other than Christmas. And those that take offense at other people saying happy holiday. Now, one of the things in the annual dust-up about Christmas and the alleged war on Christmas has uh, this year been the Starbucks coffee cup. Now, before we jump into that, 
It is alleged by news agencies everywhere that all of us evangelical Christians are very upset by the Starbucks coffee cup. The problem is I haven't yet met anyone who is actually upset about the Starbucks coffee cup. Now, I did a little history into the evolution of the Starbucks coffee cup at Christmas. And I want you to see last year's and this year's side by side. It's an incredible, drastic change. Obviously, in 2014, they put whipped cream in the cups. Uh, But if you look closely, you'll see that the 2014 Starbucks red coffee cup had a embossed snowflake. And in this nefarious 2015 edition, we have removed the snowflake. Now, if you study religious imagery, you will know that the snowflake is a long-standing traditional symbol of the coming of Christ. And we have all been slighted by its removal from the Starbucks coffee cup. Here's the deal, guys. I have no idea how this happened. But apparently we're all offended deeply by this. It's an example or an illustration of some of the silliness that happens around this alleged war on Christmas. Look, Starbucks is a coffee company. It's owned by shareholders. Some of them love Jesus. Some of them don't. I don't expect Starbucks to promote Christianity. I expect them to sell mediocre coffee at an inflated price. That's what they do. That's how they deliver income to their shareholders. And so I'm not mad at them because they don't say Merry Christmas. I also recognize that they haven't said Merry Christmas for a long time. And as we go through this, I think you'll see that the task of defending Christmas, of guarding the gift of Christmas, has very little to do with asking retailers to pretend to love Jesus so that they can get our money. So I want to dig deep into what Christmas is, why it's important that we guard it. And I want us to start in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 is going to give us a glimpse into the gift that Christmas is, why it must be guarded, and even how we're to go about doing that. We'll begin in verse 8 of chapter 1. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The Apostle Paul looks upon the entire message, the testimony of the coming of our Lord Jesus, his appearing, his birth of a virgin, his sinless life, his death for our sin and his resurrection. And he calls this the good news, the gospel that has been entrusted to him, that's been given to him. And he says that the spirit of God will work within us to guard this good deposit that was given to us. I find it interesting that the scriptures are going to tell us that we must guard it that we must defend and protect this good news that begins with the coming of Jesus at Christmas. The reason for that, 
The reason that the Scriptures are clear that we must guard the gift of Christmas is because Christmas, before there was ever the war on Christmas, Christmas was an act of war. It was an all-out declaration of war against every form of sin, oppression, and injustice. Against every darkness over human history. Christmas is war. You see, Jesus was born into a world in which Israel, the people of God, lived under the oppression of the Romans, their earthly captors, and under the weight of God's judgment for their disobedience and sin. And the Gentile world, all that were not Jews, the people who for the most of us were our ancestors, lived in the absence of promise from God without hope, not knowing Him. Which means that that our ancestors, for generations, would be born into families that worshipped false pagan gods, would live their lives attempting to appease them, would get married, raise children, and propagate those same lies only to die and go to eternity without hope. That is the world into which Jesus is born, a world that is absent of hope and covered in darkness. That's why the prophet says, to a people wandering in darkness, a light has shone. When the Apostle John looks out on the Christmas story and reflects on it, He doesn't begin with Mary and Jesus and Joseph in the manger. He begins in heaven, viewing the entire event through the lens of heaven. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, he begins this way and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then John would go on to tell us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. But when John tells the story, he tells the story of light invading darkness. And he tells the story with with these words, and the darkness has not overcome it. That there is now and has always been an active, open conflict, a war, a battle between light and dark. And that the light always is victorious. And he frames the story of the coming of Jesus in the middle of this battle of light and darkness and the victory of the light over the darkness. See, when we view Christmas in this way, it's more than than Jesus and Mary and Joseph and shepherds in a manger. It's an act of of war. It's an invasion of sorts. Years ago, on June the 6th, 1944, 160,000 Allied troops landed on 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified beach in France. The Nazis were encamped there, well-armed and prepared. And they made a straight charge against the Nazis and their guns, many of them losing their lives. And that moment in history we call D-Day, and it represented the turning of the tide in World War II. And from that point on, things began to shift in the war, whereas the Nazis had, had, had grown in the area of Europe that they controlled and put more and more peoples under their oppressive boot. Now, from D-Day moving forward, we begin to see the liberation and hope returning to Europe. 
People again living in freedom in their own homes without fear. And that invasion changed the landscape of the conflict. Christmas is D-Day. Christmas is the day that God invades human history in a new way that changes everything, that turns the tide in the war between dark and light, good and evil. When God takes on human form to redeem us. And so when we talk about this alleged war on Christmas, we've got to go deeper than that and recognize that Christmas is an act of war. And just as the Nazi soldiers fired all of their ammunition at the Allied forces when they stormed the beaches, the enemy will continue to fight against the kingdom of God as it advances. And I want you to understand that there is reason that the opposition to God and His kingdom would fight. There are reasons for conflict. And I want today to show you three reasons that there is conflict. Three reasons that Christmas is war. The first is this, is that Christmas brings both judgment and salvation. It brings both. As the Apostle John continues to reflect upon the goodness of Christ, the gospel, he begins to lay out in John chapter 3 some very important truth for us. Beginning in verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. As we step back, there's a few important truths that that are communicated to us in, in these few verses. The first is that salvation comes by faith in Jesus alone. I love John 3.16 for this purpose. It takes the entirety of the gospel message and crams it into about 15 words so that you can just latch onto it. That's the reason that we teach it to our children from their, from their earliest ages, that they learn to memorize these verses in cubbies before they can really even read because we want them to understand this central gospel message that God loved the world and that love motivated him to send his son and that salvation and forgiveness of sins is found in faith in Jesus alone. So there are two options laid on the table in John 3.16. There is eternal life and there is perishing. And the difference between the two is faith in Jesus. One of the great things that I get to do as a pastor is to interview kids as they're getting ready for baptism. A family calls and says, you know, uh, our child would like to be baptized. And so we want to meet with them. We want to talk about the gospel, make sure they understand and affirm it. We want to talk to them about baptism and make sure they understand what baptism is and isn't. And there's a question we ask them. We ask them, what do you have to do to be saved? And we have them read through John 3.16 and they answer the question, you have to believe in Jesus. That's almost universally the answer we get. And then we ask a trick question. We say, well, what else? 
and we wait to hear what we're going to hear. And if we begin to get new things, like, well, you have to go to church, we say, I want you to, let's go through John 3.16 again. And we just go through it again. One of the great blessings that I did, have gotten to have is, is um, to baptize several of my children. And when our little girl Claire wanted to be baptized, we did what you do. We made her make an appointment with her pastor. And so she came to meet with me, and she said, Daddy, I want to be baptized. And so we talked about the gospel. We talked about things. I said, baby, tell me John 3.16. And she could rattle it off. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I said, honey, what do you have to do to be saved for God to forgive you? She said, you have to believe in Jesus. I said, sweetheart, what else do you have to do? And Claire, with great hand motions and expression, said, well, absolutely nothing. <laughs> One of the proudest moments of my life. She got it. Salvation comes by faith alone. Additionally, we learned something about the natural state of man outside of Jesus coming for us. Is that Jesus didn't have to come to condemn the world because the world already stood condemned. Jesus coming is all about salvation because condemnation is what reigned from Adam until Jesus. So Jesus comes to offer salvation. Because the norm was, was, uh, for us was to be dead in our sin, as the scriptures would say, or dead man walking, as we might say, in the prison system. But we were condemned. And Jesus is the dividing line between the redeemed and the condemned. Not our good works, not religious activity or behavior. Simply Jesus, his death for our sin and resurrection, and our trust or belief in him. And that's it. But built into that, I want you to see that the light of Jesus' perfection is both attractive and repulsive depending on who you are. That for some, the light of Jesus and His perfect righteousness draws us because we recognize our sinfulness and we desire to be rescued from it. But for those who refuse to look at their own sinfulness or to... Or to accept the reality that there is a righteous and holy God who will judge them. The scriptures say they run from the light for fear that they will be forced to see their own sin. Because they loved the darkness and didn't want to turn from it. So the good news of Christmas is His great news if you will turn to Jesus in humility and believe in Him to rescue you from your sin. But if you will not, it is news of condemnation. So people fight. Those who who don't want to see God move in a saving way will fight against the gift of Christmas. Those who reject God's right to judge will fight against the gift of Christmas. That's why everybody's fine with nativity seeing Jesus. Nobody has a problem with a scene on a hillside of shepherds and a mother and a father and a baby. But when we begin to describe who that baby is and what he means, people will fight against Christmas. Not because they're bothered by the baby, but because they're bothered by the message of judgment and salvation and the fact that the Scriptures proclaim this Jesus, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, attended by shepherds and heralded by angels is the only means of salvation and that Christ Jesus is the only mediator between God and man and the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The second reason that Christmas causes conflict is because Christmas brings a king. 
See, the Magi, the wise men, they knew that. They had seen some sign in the stars that led them to believe that a great king would be born, and they came following that star. And they did what you'd expect anyone to do. They end up at the palace in Jerusalem. Where else would you expect to find the newborn king of the Jews? But Jesus was not to be found there. They met with Herod the king, and they told him, we've come to see this king who's born for Judah. We're following him, looking for him. Where should we go? Well, Herod finds this interesting because he believes himself to be the king of the Jews. He has the title, he has the palace, and he has the army. So he sends the wise men on their journey and asks that they simply return to him and give him the whereabouts of the child so that he could go and worship. And upon finding out that they had skipped town Herod took action. We talked about that last week, his desire to stamp out this threat, this opposing king who would take his kingdom from him. See, we don't have kings in our world. We don't ever talk about kings and kingdoms. We have elected officials, um, and we don't understand that. But in Jesus' world, kings were a normal thing. For generations, the world had been ruled by small regional kings that ruled over one people group, one area. And all that changed with the Roman Empire expanding. And you had an emperor who reigned over what was the entire known world at that moment. And underneath that emperor, he had assigned smaller kings. Because there's no way for the emperor from Rome to manage the entire empire. So they would assign a king over this region or this people group to reign it. And that king had essentially two jobs. They had to maintain the peace to ensure that there was no rebellion or revolt. And they had to ensure the appropriate level of tax revenue flowing back to Rome. Two jobs. Stop rebellions. Send the money promptly. Herod was one of those kings. There were others. There were tetrarchs and ethnarchs and this whole category and hierarchy of kings in their day. But Jesus comes as a different kind of king altogether. A kind of king that doesn't appear cooperative with the existence of other kings. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet tells us of the coming of this king who would reign. And I have to believe that Daniel, who led the wise men in the Babylonian empire, that the thinkers and scholars of the day were under his direction, is it possibly the reason that these wise men knew to look for a king rising up in Judah? And I want you to hear in Daniel 7 what the prophet sees. In chapter 7, verse 13. Said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is everlasting, dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is a different kind of king. He's not a king who who is king over one region or one people group for one period of time. He is a king who reigns exclusively, exhaustively, and eternally. And, And he is the king to end all king, who brings the kingdoms to end all kingdoms. That all other kingdoms before Jesus will ultimately be destroyed. And all other kings before Jesus will ultimately be dethroned. And that is a threat. 
That's a threat to every kingdom that's ever existed. That's a threat to every man, woman, or child who fancies themselves the king of their own world. He says, every one of us will be dethroned and Jesus will reign as king. And that is a threat. Because we like to hold on to the illusions of our control. And Jesus comes as in a king that will reign exclusively, exhaustively, and eternally. But he doesn't just come as a king, he's going to bring a kingdom. And that's the third reason that you see conflict around Christmas, is Christmas represents the emergence of a new kingdom on earth. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet foretold what kind of kingdom Jesus would bring. In verse 6, these famous verses... For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The Scriptures tells us about an ever-expanding, eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice. But embedded in that, these final words of this passage tell us the means in which this kingdom will come to pass. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's an interesting phrase to call God the Lord of hosts because it, it points to one particular imagery of God. It points to this idea that God is the leader of the armies of heaven. So when the scriptures call him the Lord of hosts, we're, we're reflecting upon the reality that God has this innumerable number of angels at his disposal, ready to do his will if he so commanded. And that God, in power and might, as the ruler of the armies of heavens, in his zeal, would bring this about. And so when the ruler of heaven's armies, decides to invade earth, he does something no one expected. Instead of sending tens of thousands of angels to kill all the oppressive and unrighteous and unjust men and women on the face of the earth, he sends a baby. His only son, and he puts him on the front line. He puts him in harm's way, knowing that his sacrifice and his suffering is the means of this kingdom coming of everlasting peace and righteousness and justice. See, but this kingdom is a threat to all who would oppress and do unrighteous deeds, including us. And in the end, there's only one way to approach this king, and that's in humility. The Scriptures tell us that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And it's an important passage of Scripture because it points out the ultimate end of everyone as they stand before Jesus. You will kneel or you will kneel. Some of us in joyful obedience at the coming of our King. Some of us in fearful judgment as He comes in retribution. But the offer for us is to come to Him while he is patient, to embrace this reign of justice and righteousness so that we would be a part of it and embrace the promise of eternal life in him. But this kind of a gift must be guarded. It must be guarded because it is so great and infinite in the joy that it brings to those who receive it. And it must be guarded because there are those who would desire to taint it, twist it, and create confusion. 
So what do we do to guard the gift of Christmas? I would say the first thing we do is that we let non-believers off the hook. We let them off the hook. If you don't love Jesus, we're okay if you don't celebrate Christmas. If you don't worship Jesus as the only Son of God who died for your sins and rose again, you don't have to pay Him lip service. We, we right now want to absolve you of any sense of guilt that you have to do that. The second thing we can do to guard Christmas to create, is to create clarity around what Christmas is and isn't. Christmas literally means the feast of Christ. It's a celebration of the coming of Christ. It's a holiday, which is an English word for holy day or sacred day. There's some things that Christmas is and Christmas isn't. And I want you to see an image that depicts some of the confusion there. Because there are various ways to look at Christmas, and they're not always compatible with one another. On the top, you'll see the traditional manger scene. A Christmas staple for 2,000 years. And on the bottom, you'll see the traditional Walmart scene. A Christmas staple since 1984. Now, in these scenes, we see two drastically different things. They can't both be Christmas. The coming of the Son of God placed in a manger given to working class parents Embracing the poverty of earth, exchanging that for the riches of heaven to redeem us, is in no way similar to fighting for discount electronics. These events can't be the same thing. They, they can't be called the same thing. It doesn't make sense for, for me to get in line at 4 a.m. to break into Walmart, to get the, the big TV and use WWF wrestling moves if I have to, to get in line and demand to be told Merry Christmas. As if what we just went through had anything to do with Jesus. So if we want to engage rightly and win the war on Christmas by guarding it, let's create clarity about what Christmas is and what Christmas isn't. The top picture, that's Christmas. The bottom completely unrelated. They just happen around the same time of year. Towards that end, I, I don't want merchandisers manipulating me for more money to say Merry Christmas to me anymore. I don't even want them to say Happy Holidays because we own that word too. And I want the church to take our words back. You don't get to co-opt Christianity anymore to fill your pocketbooks. If we want to guard Christmas... We can celebrate it. We can give gifts. We can do all that stuff. Just remember that it's about Jesus. So if they want to have a winter holiday that centers around commercialism, I would suggest Winterfest or um, cold weather commercialism. Maybe the marketing departments, they could beat me. There's a lot of money to throw into this. But don't call it Christmas. I want us to take ownership of what Christmas is again. See, for hundreds of years... There's been this drift in Western culture to hold on to Christmas and to remove Jesus. And I'd rather we just have Jesus. So don't get wrapped into that. If you want to go shopping on Good Friday, that's great. Just call it shopping. But make sure that Jesus is at the center of your family's Christmas celebration. Make sure that as you go around and look at Christmas lights, that you read John 1 and you tell the kids, Jesus is the light of the world. 
make sure that when you open gifts and you give gifts to one another, that you remind everyone that the greatest gift of all is Jesus. So that's not just a side note, that that permeates the Christmas experience so that there's clarity about what Christmas is and what Christmas isn't. And the last that I would tell you is if we want to guard the gift is don't be ashamed of Christ this Christmas. As we see in 1 Timothy. He says, but the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We guard it. And we're not ashamed of it. We're not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. We're happy to share. Christmas creates a unique opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with, with those that we live and work with. There's Christmas parties going on and, and there's gifts being given and people are open to conversations. It's easy to say, tell me what you think about Christmas. What do you know about Christmas? To use this kind of natural, seasonal openness to take advantage of it. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, but really take the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with others. We've been given a softball here. Let's tee up. As we consider what it means to entrust this gift, I think it's important that we understand that term, that the gift has been entrusted to us. And that's, that's different in terminology than, than to say the gift was given to us. There's an expectation with a trust. That if I entrust something to you, I, I have expectations, then there'll be accountability for what you do with it. And the gift we've been given was entrusted to us because God expects us to do something. And this is where the gift of Christmas is really unique from every other gift that's ever been given. Because the gift of Christmas is given with the expectation and the demand that it will be regifted. You see, regifting is something we generally frown on. And if, if you give someone a gift and you find out that they regifted it, you might be offended. But Christmas is drastically different than that. God demands that the gift that we've received, we turn around and regift to others. He's not offended. He's disappointed if we don't. So we guard the gift of Christmas because we want to celebrate it and enjoy it for all the fullness of joy that it brings. And we want to give it untainted, unedited to the next generation, to our neighbors and friends and co-workers, so that they too can experience a joy that goes beyond anything this world can offer, that goes beyond any of the best gadgets that Walmart can merchandise, that gets to the very need of our soul to be rescued from our sin and to become sons and daughters welcomed into the kingdom of God. Not through the back door as people who barely made it in, but as adopted children. That's the gift of Christmas. That's a gift worth guarding so that we can pass it on. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are good and gracious to us, that you have given to us this amazing gift of Christmas, and that you have called us to guard it and to re-gift it so that others would celebrate along with us. Father, I pray that the joy that we have in this season would be rooted in all that your Son has done for us, and that our joy would be made full and would overflow so that others would be invited to follow your Son. Father, I pray that you'd empower us as your people to begin to move in the midst of our culture, our community, and our families to guard Christmas, to create clarity about what Christmas is, and not to be ashamed of the beautiful story of your Son coming to save us. Father, we pray that as we do that and move forward in faith, that your name would be lifted up and that your son would be honored. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.